Section seventy six of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. Luke, Volume two, by J. C. Ryle. Chapter twenty four, verses forty four to forty nine. Christ's last injunctions to the eleven. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Luke, chapter twenty four, verses forty four to forty nine. And he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you, while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms, concerning me. Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the scriptures. And he said unto them, This it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem, and ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem, until ye be endued with power from on high. Let us observe, firstly, in these verses, the gift which our Lord bestowed on his disciples immediately before he left the world. We read that he opened their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures, we must not misapprehend these words. We are not to suppose that the disciples knew nothing about the Old Testament up to this time, and that the Bible is a book which no ordinary person can expect to comprehend. We are simply to understand that Jesus showed his disciples the full meaning of many passages which had hitherto been hid from their eyes. Above all, he showed the true interpretation of many prophetical passages concerning the Messiah. We all need a like enlightenment of our understandings. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Pride, and prejudice, and love of the world blind our intellects, and throw a veil over the eyes of our minds in the reading of the Scriptures. We see the words, but do not thoroughly understand them until we are taught from above. He that desires to read his Bible with profit must first ask the Lord Jesus to open the eyes of his understanding by the Holy Ghost. Human commentaries are useful in their way. The help of good and learned men is not to be despised. But there is no commentary to be compared with the teaching of Christ. A humble and prayerful spirit will find a thousand things in the Bible which the proud, self-conceited student will utterly fail to discern. Let us observe, secondly, in these verses, the remarkable manner in which the Lord Jesus speaks of his own death on the cross. He does not speak of it as misfortune, or as a thing to be lamented, but as a necessity. He says, It behooved Christ to suffer, and to rise again the third day. The death of Christ was necessary to our salvation. His flesh and blood offered in sacrifice on the cross were the life of the world. John chapter 6, verse 51. Without the death of Christ, so far as we can see, God's law could never have been satisfied. Sin could never have been pardoned, man could never have been justified before God, and God could never have shown mercy to man. The cross of Christ was the solution of a mighty difficulty. It untied a vast knot. It enabled God to be just and yet the justifier of the ungodly. Romans chapter 3 verse 26 it enabled man to draw near to God with boldness, and to feel that though a sinner he might have hope. 
christ by suffering as a substitute in our stead the just for the unjust has made a way by which we can draw near to god we may freely acknowledge that in ourselves we are guilty and deserve death but we may boldly plead that one has died for us and that for his sake believing on him we claim life and acquittal let us ever glory in the cross of christ let us regard it as the source of all our hopes and the foundation of all our peace ignorance and unbelief may see nothing in the sufferings of calvary but the cruel martyrdom of an innocent person faith will look far deeper faith will see in the death of jesus the payment of man's enormous debt to god and the complete salvation of all who believe let us observe thirdly in these verses what were the first truths which the lord jesus bade his disciples to preach after he left the world we read that repentance and remission of sins were to be preached in his name among all nations repentance and the remission of sins are the first things which ought to be pressed on the attention of every man woman and child throughout the world all ought to be told the necessity of repentance all are by nature desperately wicked without repentance and conversion none can enter the kingdom of god all ought to be told god's readiness to forgive every one who believes on christ all are by nature guilty and condemned but any one may obtain by faith in jesus free full and immediate pardon all not least ought to be continually reminded that repentance and remission of sins are inseparably linked together not that our repentance can purchase our pardon pardon is the free gift of god to the believer in christ but still it remains true that a man impenitent is a man unforgiven he that desires to be a true christian must be experimentally acquainted with repentance and remission of sins these are the principal things in saving religion to belong to a pure church and hear the gospel and receive the sacraments are great privileges but are we converted are we justified if not we are dead before god happy is that christian who keeps these two points continually before his eyes repentance and remission are not merely elementary truths and milk for babes the highest standard of sanctity is nothing more than a continual growth in practical knowledge of these two points the brightest saint is the man who has the most heart-searching sense of his own sinfulness and the liveliest sense of his own complete acceptance in christ let us observe fourthly what was the first place at which the disciples were to begin preaching they were to begin at jerusalem this is a striking fact and one full of instruction it teaches us that none are to be reckoned too wicked for salvation to be offered to them and that no degree of spiritual disease is beyond the reach of the gospel remedy jerusalem was the wickedest city on earth when our lord left the world it was a city which had stoned the prophets and killed those whom god sent to call it to repentance it was a city full of pride unbelief self-righteousness and desperate hardness of heart it was a city which had just crowned all its transgressions by crucifying the lord of glory and yet jerusalem was the place at which the first proclamation of repentance and pardon was to be made the command of christ was plain begin at jerusalem we see in these wondrous words the length and breadth and depth 
and height of Christ's compassion towards sinners. We must never despair of any one being saved, however bad and profligate he may have been. We must open the door of repentance to the chief of sinners. We must not be afraid to invite the worst of men to repent, believe, and live. It is the glory of our great physician that he can heal incurable cases. The things that seem impossible to men are possible with Christ. Let us observe, lastly, the peculiar position which believers, and especially ministers, are meant to occupy in this world. Our Lord defines it in one expressive word. He says, Ye are witnesses. If we are true disciples of Christ, we must bear a continual testimony in the midst of an evil world. We must testify to the truth of our Master's gospel, the graciousness of our Master's heart, the happiness of our Master's service, the excellence of our Master's rules of life, and the enormous danger and wickedness of the ways of the world. Such testimony will doubtless bring down upon us the displeasure of man. The world will hate us, as it did our Master, because we testify of it that its works are evil. John chapter 7, verse 7. Such testimony will doubtless be believed by few comparatively, and will be thought by many offensive and extreme. But the duty of a witness is to bear his testimony, whether he is believed or not. If we bear a faithful testimony, we have done our duty, although, like Noah and Elijah and Jeremiah, we stand almost alone. What do we know of this witnessing character? What kind of testimony do we bear? What evidence do we give that we are disciples of a crucified Saviour, and, like Him, are not of the world? John chapter 17, verse 14. What marks do we show of belonging to Him who said, I came that I should bear witness unto the truth? John chapter 18, verse 7. Happy is he who can give a satisfactory answer to these questions, and whose life declares plainly that he seeks a country. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 14. Notes. Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 49. Verse 44. These are the words, etc. This expression must be paraphrased in order to give the full meaning of it. Alfred renders it, Behold the realization of the words. It signifies, You now see actually fulfilled the words which I so often spake to you, saying that the predictions about my sufferings must be accomplished. You could not then believe that I was really going to suffer and afterwards rise again. You see now that it was true. Must be fulfilled. The Greek word here translated must is the same that is rendered ought in the 26th verse and behooved in the 46th. Law of Moses, Prophets, Psalms it should be remembered that this threefold division was the Jewish division of the Old Testament. They classified all its contents under these three heads. When our Lord speaks of the things in the Law of Moses concerning Himself, there can be little doubt that He points to all the types and figures which were emblems of Himself, and specially to the sacrifices. Verse 45 Opened He their understanding, etc. We are taught here that the minds of the disciples had been closed by prejudice and traditional interpretations. Our Lord opened the doors and windows of their minds, and let in the light. Poole remarks, He did not open their understanding without the Scripture. He sends them thither. 
he knows that scripture would not give them a sufficient knowledge of the things of god without the influence and illumination of his spirit they are truly taught by god who are taught by his spirit to understand the scriptures christ gives great honor to the scriptures the devil cheats those whom he persuades to cast away the scriptures in expectation of a teaching by the spirit the spirit teaches by and not without not contrary to the holy scriptures cornelius elipide tries in vain to argue from this verse that the laity cannot understand the bible without the teaching of the church that the bible is not suited for the laity and that the apostles had the knowledge of the scriptures specially entrusted to them there is not the slightest proof that the apostles alone had their understanding opened on the present occasion on the contrary the context distinctly tells us that those who were here assembled were the apostles and they that were with them moreover the fact that our lord opened the understandings of all is a plain proof that all whether apostles or not require teaching from above and that christ is able ready and willing to give it to all whether apostles or not as long as the world stands verse forty six thus it is written this is a general expression signifying it was written in scripture that things concerning me should take place in the way in which they have taken place it was written that it should be so and it was necessary or behooved therefore that so it should be if christ had not suffered and risen again scripture would not have been fulfilled the chief reference here no doubt is to isaiah chapter fifty three psalm twenty two and daniel chapter nine verse twenty six rise from the dead the third day the question has been raised here where does the old testament say that christ should rise again the third day pierce remarks that it does not appear unless in hosea chapter six verse two and jonas chapter one verse seventeen i am not however convinced that either here or in first corinthians chapter fifteen verse four it was intended that we should lay stress on the third day in understanding the sentence the meaning of the verse seems to me to be simply that it was written and was therefore necessary that christ should suffer and rise again i cannot see that the sense obliges us to find an old testament prediction about the third day even if it did i feel no doubt that there are more passages to prove it than any one has yet discovered there is a depth of meaning in the old testament i suspect with reference to christ which no one has yet fully fathomed verse forty seven and that the governing words here we must remember are still it is written and was therefore necessary that etc repentance and remission of sins these words are a brief summary of the main doctrines of the gospel the necessity of repentance and the possibility of remission the willingness of god to grant repentance unto life and the full provision made by christ for the pardon of man's sins were to be proclaimed and published like a notice given publicly by a herald and all was to be done in christ's name that expression is the leading one in the whole sentence it signifies by the authority of christ and through the merit and mediation of christ both ideas are included no christian teaching be it remembered is scriptural and sound which does not give the principal place to these two great doctrines among all nations the greek words here would be equally well translated among all gentiles and considering that jerusalem is brought in at the end of the verse it is highly probable 
that this was the idea intended to be conveyed the gospel was to be preached to gentiles as well as jews beginning at jerusalem this expression taught two things one was that the apostles and first preachers of the gospel should not shrink from offering salvation to the worst and greatest sinners they were not to regard even the city where their master was crucified as hopelessly wicked and too bad to be benefited by the gospel the result showed that this command was not given without cause the greatest triumph ever won by the gospel perhaps was the conversion of three thousand jerusalem hearers on the day of pentecost the other lesson was that the first offer of salvation should always be made to the jews hardened unbelieving as they were they were still beloved for the father's sake and were not to be despised romans chapter eleven verse twenty eight the acts of the apostles in instances too many to be quoted as well as st paul's words in the epistle to the romans romans chapter one verse sixteen show how faithfully the apostles discharged the duty of preaching to the jews the duty of christians to care specially for the souls of jews seems plainly pointed out in the expression before us let it be noted that the conclusions of peter's two first sermons at jerusalem in acts chapter two and chapter three exactly carried out the command of this verse before us he preached repentance and remission in christ's name verse forty eight ye are witnesses of these things the things here spoken of must be the things concerning himself which our lord had just been expounding the office which the first disciples and after them all ministers and believers were to fill is stated in the word witnesses steer remarks it is not the lord's will to appoint and send forth orators or enthusiasts or even simple teachers but before all and in all witnesses the idea contained in luke chapter one verse two which from the beginning were eye-witnesses and ministers of the word, is here found once more. Verse 49. I send the promise of my Father. This expression means the Holy Ghost, whom the Father had promised in the Old Testament prophecies to send, and who came down on the day of Pentecost. See Isaiah, chapter 44, verse 3, Joel, chapter 2, verse 28, Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 33, Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 27 Let it be noted that our Lord here speaks of sending the Holy Ghost. We see in this his equality and unity with God the Father. We also see that the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Son no less than from the Father. Let it be noted that the Holy Ghost is evidently a person and not an influence. The words I send can only be used of a person. Let it be noted that our Lord says I send, not I will send. This shows the certainty of the coming of the Holy Ghost and the speedy approach of His coming. May it not also show that even from the very time at which our Lord spoke, the disciples would begin to receive grace and power from the Holy Ghost. Tarry ye in the city, until, etc. This expression is remarkable. It seems to denote that our Lord would have His disciples go forth into all nations immediately after the day of Pentecost, and wait at jerusalem no longer their backwardness to do this when compared with the expression before us is noteworthy endued this word means literally be clothed upon or invested with it is frequently used in the new testament and implies a putting on something which we do not naturally possess see romans chapter 13 verse 14 
1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 53, Galatians chapter 3 verse 27, Colossians chapter 3 verses 9 and 10. Power from on high. Some have thought that this expression is only a form of speech for the Holy Ghost himself. It seems more likely that it signifies the energy and influence imparted by the Holy Ghost. It is very like the expression used about the Virgin Mary. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the Most Highest shall overshadow thee. Luke chapter 1 verse 35. It would then mean in this place, Tarry ye to be endued with that heavenly power which the Holy Ghost, whom the Father has promised, and I also send, shall impart to you. Alfred quotes a remark of Steer that this in doing with the Holy Ghost was the true and complete clothing of the nakedness of the fall. This appears to me only partially correct. I believe that the imputed righteousness of Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, is the true garment which remedies the nakedness of the fall. Romans chapter 3 verse 22. The indwelling grace of the Spirit is doubtless never separate from that righteousness, but it is in itself a distinct and separate thing, and should be kept distinct in our minds. End of section 76